0: Welcome to the History of England, episode 117, The Medieval Year. I read some clever article recently which had an argument about when the Middle Ages end and we can call ourselves into the modern age. Now, I would earn myself the title of Professor of the obvious by saying this, but while such a term, of course, would have had no relevance at all at the time, my approach has always been the Battle of Bosworth. One day, there were all these medieval blokes trudging along the muddy roads of Leicestershire towards Bosworth Field. Richard III gets cut down and bang, there you go, a bunch of early modern blokes returning to their early modern wives and Bob's your father's early modern brother. Obviously, you'll notice that I'm taking a parochial, Anglo-centric approach to the European and world history, since outside that almost no one gave a tinker's curse about the great relevance of the Battle of Bosworth but then you are listening to a history of England. Anyway, onward, this article was being more intelligent, with all kinds of suggestions. But the one that struck me most was the idea that it was the Reformation that really changed things in places like England. That up until then, it was the Catholic Church, the rhythm of its saints and seasons and institutions, that meant the most to people, because it was the way they measured the progress of their lives, it was the framework on which they hung their communities. It's these things which were really the weft and warp of life for the vast majority of people. Kings and queens and constitutional change would have been super distant. So although I'm conscious that we've touched on this subject previously, I thought I'd spend an entire episode on the medieval year. How fun does that sound on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being ditchwater and 10 being wee-inducingly entertaining. So, the first full and frank exchange of views comes immediately over when we start the medieval year, because there is more than one candidate. What we have in Days Medieval are two calendars running side by side and intertwined. One was the Roman calendar that we all know and love. Twelve months, you know the scene. The other was the liturgical calendar with all its festivals. These get mixed up something rotten. Using the liturgical calendar was darned complicated since, of course, there were a number of movable feasts driven by that most movable feast of them all, Easter. And, of course, as you'll no doubt know, at various times the reasons for all these feast dates gets challenged in our thinking in the modern era, as we began to understand that the Christian church had cleverly used a cuckoo strategy originally by taking over old pagan rituals for Christian festivals. Anyway will major with the Roman calendar, with the liturgical calendar slotted therein. But even this isn't as easy as it sounds, because the idea of using the number of days in a month, you know like, why don't you come over and play with my train set on the 25th of November, was alien. And indeed, just far too simple for the medieval man. Nope, dates were very often given by the reference to a number of days before or after a fixed point in the month. These fixed points in the months were the Nones, the Ides and the Calends. The Nones were either the 5th or the 7th of the month, depending on the position of the Ides. The Ides, originally the day of the full moon, was either the 13th or the 15th of the month, depending on the length of the month. And the Calends, reassuringly, were always the 1st of the month, originally the day of the new moon and therefore the origin of the word calendar. So, if you wanted to organise your boys' poker session, you'd say, Oi, William, why don't you and the lads come around five days before the Ides of August? Which I'm pretty sure, but only pretty sure, would be the 10th of August in our modern idiom. Are you still with me? This is the most confusing thing I have ever heard of since I bought a flat pack chest of drawers from Ikea. What occurs to me as I say all this, is that life in the medieval world is without doubt analogue, isn't it? The digital world would have blown their minds. Turn up at 8.25 on Friday, and if you're late, I'll be really grumpy. Just wouldn't have worked. Actually, I remember an article once about the introduction of the railways into 19th century England, and one of the things people absolutely hated was the blessed timetables. They just hated the fact that timings were so precise, and so final, And worst of all, that all the trains actually turned up on time. If you weren't there at 8.11, the thing had gone. This was completely alien to the way things had always worked. Anyway, I'm conscious of rabbiting on a bit. So, the start of the year was always something of a healthy debate. There were a number of options open. So, the Annunciation, or Lady Day, was an option on the 25th of March. Or, at Easter or the 1st of January, the time of Christ's circumcision, or at Christmas, 25th of December. The 25th of March the time was particularly popular, and becoming more so during our period, and is the reason why our official fiscal year starts on the 6th of April, which at first sign is a particularly potty date to start anything. Well, to get at the reason for this, you have to also adjust the Julian calendar used back there, to the Gregorian calendar we use now, where you have to make the adjustment of a number of days to make them fit together. As it happens, of course, all history books these days have been converted for you, so no need to worry, but just so as you know, there are no certainties in life, including the start of the year, OK? So, Advent, starting on the fourth weekend before Christmas, looks forward to the birth of Christ, and was a four-week period of fasting leading up to the most holy day, which was Christmas Eve. Now I know what you're thinking, four weeks fasting sounds like a dreadfully long time to do without food, isn't everyone dropping like flies? Well fasting in this context didn't mean eating no food at all, it meant avoiding the richest food, meat, cheese, eggs, there'd be a lot of fish. The 12 days of Christmas then kicked off with Christmas Day. You have to feel there's some connection here between the Christmas period, including New Year, and the natural year. After all, here we are in the depths of winter, and we've got a good old slap-up celebration to make everyone feel better. The date of Christmas is, of course, the subject of much debate and speculation, but there's little genuine certainty around. However, it is worth noting that the Puritans got all hot under the collar, about the fact that in their view Christmas was really the Roman celebration of Saturnalia and the birth of the unconquered sun. And equally the Roman church got short-tempered about the use of the word Yule, which is practically synonymous with Christmas around these parts. Yule was in fact the Scandinavian pagan midwinter celebration and appears in England around the 11th century. It's clearly pretty persistent. For example, in the 12th century, the Bishop of Exeter identified a specific set of penances for people involved in heathen rites around the period. In Lincolnshire, there was something called a Yule Girth, which was an amnesty for old disputes. So the point is, there's a strong suspicion that the church had just taken over the celebrations because it was easier to use what was there already. And people tend to say this is sort of accepted as red, but there are also good reasons – why the 25th of December should be Christ's birthday. It is, after all, nine months after the Annunciation, for example. But whatever the provenance, on the 25th itself, you'd kick off with a good old Mass, followed by reciting the genealogy of Christ, accompanied by the lighting of candles in the dark church, particularly lighting a whopper of a candle set on the rude loft, the wooden screen that separates chancel from nave in the church. You would then break your fast with a good old pig-out. During Christmas itself, it was often the custom for the Lord to hand out robes and presents to their retainers and tenants. But there was plenty of potential for gift-giving and celebration in the stream of feast days that led up to January 6th. So on the 26th, you remembered the first Christian saint, St Stephen. On the 27th, it was St John the Evangelist's turn The 28th was Holy Innocence Day when Herod's soldiers had killed all the babies in Bethlehem. The 1st of January was both New Year's Day for many people and the day of Christ's circumcision for others. And on the 1st it was the tradition to give a present to your Lord. However, as I say, in our period New Year's Day was actually the 25th of March or the Annunciation So ordained in 1155, and not changed back to the 1st of January until 1752. But notwithstanding that, people still parted. There were lots of lovely traditions about this Christmas period. Villains didn't have to work on their Lord's domain land. Another modern-seeming tradition, the holly and the ivy thing, was also prevalent in times medieval because we get late medieval references to this sort of thing, maybe with holly being used to decorate the inside of houses and ivy outside. Lords were expected to throw feasts to show their largesse, and it looks as though there were party games from a reference in 1406, and also accounts with monies paid to entertainers during the period. There's a tradition of carols being sung, with dancing and texts connected with the nativity being read, and in 1426 there's a reference to a practice called wassailing. Wassailing might just possibly perhaps be equated to carol singing door-to-door, although its origin is probably further back and probably not necessarily Christian. However, by the medieval period, it seems to be reasonably common. Wassail is derived from Anglo-Saxon hail, or keeping good health. The tradition came to be for the peasants to go round singing in the Christmas period, particularly to the Lord's door, where the Lord would throw open his doors and hand out the goodies. The subtext of this is a form of licensed and socially acceptable begging, but outwardly it's a fun community activity. Then also recorded at the court of Edward III in 1347 was another bit of fun called mumming. The idea here was that everyone dressed up in very elaborate masks, which is just exactly the sort of thing that Edward would have enjoyed. Presumably the practice was around before it hit the court, and there's no doubt that it continued and developed afterwards. So people would wear masks, but they'd also swap clothing and go round the neighbourhood singing, dancing, putting on silly plays and generally having something of a hoot. It has to be said that sadly there were medieval folk who just took everything too far it began to turn into a cover for crime. A bunch of low lives would put on masks, get people to the door, then mug and rob them. And so in 1406, a law was passed in London and a couple of other cities that anyone dressed up with a mask at Christmas time would be arrested and thrown into the cooler, which is the ultimate party poop. One more tradition that popped up in some places, including again the court of Edward II and the III, was the Bean King, which was a kind of Lord of Misrule gig. The idea was that a bean was baked into a cake, and the cake cut up into pieces. The lucky person to get the bean in their bit was king for the day. And there are records of similar midwinter kings in Oxford and Norwich, and a similar game of electing boy bishops in Salisbury. So, anyone who thinks the Middle Ages couldn't be fun, just think again. All the fun and laughter came to an end with the Feast of Epiphany on the 6th of January, 12th night, the revealing of the nature of Jesus Christ. The biggest event linked to this was the visit of the Magi to Jesus, remembered here rather than Christmas Day. Somewhere then, between Christmas and Lent, came Plough Sunday and Monday, an event prompted by the natural world rather than by the religious. Because basically the job for January to March was to plough those heavy, wet, cold English fields. It was the time to wish you lived in sunny Italy. So to encourage everyone, and make it seem just a little bit less painful, the first Sunday after Epiphany was set as Plough Sunday. There might be purification rites where ploughs were pulled round an open fire, which kind of remembers rather a pagan ritual, or alternatively, where candles were lit in the church, but much more practically there would be plough races and a feast at the end of the day for the exhausted ploughman. On the 2nd of February, it was back to the religious and Candlemas, celebrating the presentation of baby Jesus in the temple. Because of the biblical quote that Jesus was a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory of your people Israel, there was a particular focus on light and lighting candles and having candlelit processions, and lighting candles in the home, and then finishing it all off with, guess what? A big feast. One of the interesting things here is the slowly creeping use of icons. It's pretty clear that these candles themselves began to be seen as being imbued with sanctity and holiness, which the Protestant reformers are going to kick against one day. One more event before we get to Lent, good old Valentine's Day. There are a few, St. Valentine's, and no one knows much about any of the blighters. But we do know that in the 15th century at least, Valentine's Day, as we know it now, was celebrated only to be abolished as a religious festival under Edward VI. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices the 40 days prior to Easter when Jesus spent his time in the wilderness. Since it's an Easter-related event, it is, of course, a movable feast. Before Lent proper kicked off, you had Shrove Tide, which incorporated Collop Monday and Shrove Tuesday. Collop Monday has pretty much disappeared as far as I know. A collop was apparently a cheap cut of meat. Anyway, before the fasting came the feasting and the fun, so Shrove Tuesday involved a lot of fun, though not pancakes, as far as we know, until the late sixteenth century. So Shrove Tuesday fun, cockfighting was one—a regular fun sport for all the family. It does have to be said en passant that one of the least attractive features of the life medieval was the attitude towards animals. None of your namby pamby. Animals have rights too, you know. Stuff here. So cock-fighting might sound, and indeed was, pretty hideous, but there was worse, far worse, or at least more mindless. Such as the immortal game of chucking stones at a cockerel to kill it, or remarkably, buying a cockerel and burying it up to the neck, and then wearing a blindfold and trying to hit the poor thing's head off with a club. Not something to try in your local park these days. Football was another entertainment, While we're on entertainments and football at the time sounds like something of a hoot but again not for the faint-hearted rules seem to be thin on the ground essentially get and keep control of the ball at any cost and i mean any cost as many people as you like seem to be able to play and if you worked hard you might just come out alive at the end i must do more research on medieval entertainment it's brutal Anyway, after the fun, the fast. On Ash Wednesday, the serious stuff kicked off, with a service characterised by confession and the marking of ash crosses on the foreheads of the faithful. During Lent, there was no butter, cheese, eggs, meat, milk or sex. So as a result, people ate fish. What else was there to do? Sometimes no food at all was allowed during the hours of sunlight the week before Easter, was known then as now as Holy Week and started with Palm Sunday. Much of this, of course, will be familiar to many of you, but there'd be a lot of processions, people would dress up as Old Testament prophets, people would make little palm crosses, which I seem to remember doing in Sunday school many years ago. All of this stuff stresses continuity, of course, deeply comforting to the medieval mind, but also a bit of continuity right down to the current day. In times medieval, the king would wash the feet of the poor and the same procedure was followed up and down the country in many cathedrals. The day was called Sharp Thursday, probably because hair was also cut in preparation for Easter. In the churches, altars and their cloths were washed and the special service of shadows was run, recalling the desertion of Jesus by his disciples. On Good Friday, of course, everyone was in the church, and during the service a crucifix was laid on the steps leading up to the altar, and everyone crawled to it to kiss it in a ceremony called the Creeping to the Cross. Services too numerous to mention happened up to Easter Sunday, which had a special Mass and then the ubiquitous feasting afterwards to finish things up. The Mass at Easter was the centre point of the whole year, because it was only at Easter that the laity partook of the host. Now this came as something of a surprise to me, brought up in the Anglican tradition. But in those days, only the priest ever took the host and drank the wine, except at Easter. Other Easter traditions were more localised. Here are just a couple. Some areas would have a further celebration on Easter Monday. You may remember that the word ale was not just used for the drink, but also for the celebrations associated with it. So remember poor old Waltheof being trapped into rebellion at a bride's ale. So sometimes we'd get the same thing on Easter Monday, a local church ale, a party for the parish, along with a collection of course to raise money for the poor. In other areas there was a thing called Hocktide, or Hock Days. Now, oddly enough, given how long ago it was, this was in remembrance of the massacre of the Danes under Ethelred in one thousand and two you may dimly remember the ill-counselled king thrashing around looking for a way out of his constant series of defeats and lighting on the brilliant idea of killing all the Danes living under his rule. A nasty piece of work, so a good idea to have a celebration to remember it. Anyway, on the Monday, the game was that the men of the parish would capture and tie up the women and demand a kiss for their release. Ah! On the Tuesday, it all turned round and the women did the capturing, they had no interest in the kiss thing. They wanted money to release the blokes, which I have to say is pretty typical. Ain't it true that women are so much more practical than men, so much less romantic? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. No answers required. So how are we doing? Now we're well into April. These days, St George's Day is largely a bit of a non-event, but back then, the 23rd of April in England was a big day. As a feast day, it's first recorded in 1222. The Victorian tradition was that Richard I introduced the flag of St George to England, but there's no evidence for that, in fact. And it's probably Edward III who had the biggest influence by making St George the patron saint of the Order of the Garter. It's interesting to note that the flag has no official status in England at all, by the way. Anyway, St George's feast day used to have ridings through towns, organised by the town guilds, complete with a model dragon and people dressed as St George, and it sounds a lot of fun, with an increasingly patriotic element thrown in. But, despite that last element, it didn't survive the cull of the cult of the saints by the Protestants under Edward VI. Of course, we are now into spring and the sowing of the land. In the words of a contemporary writer... This renewal of all things, this splendour and beauty, the very state of things calls for a new song. Alternatively, for the aristocracy, the better weather had another meaning Quote, Easter, when tournaments, wars, and fighting recommence. Though, as far as war's concerned, it's later really, more like June. So, Richmond Castle, for example, had a garrison of 26 in December and January, and 43 in June and July. Before that was May Day, the celebration of the coming of summer. By 1350, maypoles and their related dancing were central features of the day. Later, we get regular church ales, May games, and hay, a communal meal, overseen by the May King and May Queen, or in some cases, Robin Hood appears to preside over it all. By the mid 15th century, Morris dancing began to appear. Originally popular in royal and aristocratic circles, before they dropped it on account of all that hopping and skipping around. Two more movable feasts were Rogantide and Rogan Sunday, and Ascension Day, with Ascension Day celebrated on the sixth Thursday after Easter. Rogantide was about asking God's blessing for the growing crops, so there'd be a procession around the fields of the parish. If you spot a place called Amen Corner, for example, it's probably a hangover from one of these prayer events. Delightfully enough, as you went round, you had to try to avoid meeting another parish on their own procession, or it could all turn nasty. There are plenty of records of inter-parish punch-ups. As I read this, I had a question about Rogan Tide. When I was a lad on the odd occasion, I and a mate would earn a bit of pocket money by doing some roguing for the local farmer, i.e. wandering over his fields pulling up the weeds. I wondered if Rogantide and Roguing were in some way linked, but could find no answer. So, answers on a postcard. On the seventh Sunday after Easter, we have Pentecost, or Whitson. More parades, a church ale and May games. In the later 14th century and onwards, though, the celebration of Corpus Christi began to be more important. Celebrated a couple of weeks after Pentecost. It was a celebration of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but became something of a hoolie. It became a symbol of the unity of the whole community. In towns, the guilds took responsibility for organising the festivities and spreading the word and mysteries. So in many towns, the Corpus Christi processions were very elaborate, with shrines, crosses and candles carried round the town along with the town dignitaries. In the bigger cities like York, huge pageants on carts were pulled through the streets and guilds might spend a load of cash and effort on their floats. And from these in the 15th century rose the mystery plays, which we'll cover in a separate episode sometime. Now of course we're well into summer, with communities preoccupied with haymaking, starting after Midsummer's Day in June. These days of course we associate summer with plenty and so on, which was no doubt also true in days medieval, but in those days... They didn't have waitrose flying in green beans from Kenya and so on, so July was actually called Hungry Month. The new harvest wasn't in. The old preserved food was either getting low or completely finished. This meant that Lammas Day, the 1st of August, was a big event in the rural calendar. The name comes from an Anglo-Saxon word meaning loaf mass, and the custom was to cut the first sheaf, make flour, make bread and dedicate it to God It's a sort of first fruits kind of thing. And then it's later in September when we get the old can of beans thing, the harvest festival. This grew up from the tradition of the Lord of the Manor, providing a supper for the reapers during harvest. After that, we get Michaelmas on the 29th of September, the feast of the Archangel St Michael. All of that sounds great. We made it through another year. The harvest is in, we can start pigging out again for a while. But of course we mustn't forget the good old landlords in all of this. So there they are, watching all their tenants and labourers wandering around either with full barns or purses full of coins from the results of their labours. While all around them, alewives are buzzing, looking for them to spend their wages. Time to strike before all that money gets drunk away. So harvest time was a very popular time for rents to fall due and sadly while we've talked about all those church ales and fun and games and all that sort of thing i'd guess that rent days attracted more attention there were plenty of places where you'd get a more regular even collection of rent three or four times a year for example or even monthly but by far the most common day for rent falling due was michaelmas or alternatively on st andrew's day which is the 30th of november and then almost finally Before the cycle starts all over again with Advent we have All Saints or All Hallows Day on the 1st of November with prayers to speed the soul of the dead through purgatory and when the bells might be rung until midnight to comfort these dead souls. And then finally there was Martinmas on the 11th of November which in Anglo-Saxon days was called Blood Month. This was because after winter ploughing you set about slaughtering the animals you couldn't feed over winter and preserving the meat by either salting or smoking. Before you did that, of course, it would have been silly not to use the occasion of all this meat for a feast. So they had one of those too. The day when the last fresh meat of the year was eaten. So that's it. We come back to the beginning again. I suppose the screamingly obvious point is how the natural year, the religious year, and the financial year, if you like, all came together. There's a nice charter from 1204 in Westminster about the rights of feeding pigs on mast, i.e. the nuts from trees such as oak and beech. These days, of course, taking a pig round Westminster looking for mast would be the very definition of a waste of time, but Westminster then was just a glorified village in terms of population. Anyway, the charter described the time as When the Mast lasts, namely between Michaelmas and Martinmas. So a purely natural season is defined by the feasts of the saints. Coming back to the original theme, while obviously I would be ahead of myself to cover it in depth here, the Reformation tears up a lot of this cycle, and to medieval man this must have been a lot more disruptive than the vast majority of historical events we focus on now, and caused a lot of upset. As a few random examples, in 1538 holy candles were banned and Henry VIII ordered that eating dairy products during Lent was fine. Wits and ales were condemned and under Edward VI anything not associated with specific biblical references got chopped. So, no more All Souls ceremony for example. We tend to focus with horror on the Puritans in the Civil War cancelling Christmas but all of that started much earlier. So, now all of you medieval nuts out there can celebrate Lammas Eve when Boogie walks, along with Bertie Wooster and all the rest of them. Next week, I have a week off, but fortunately, Carrie Palmer has done a short piece for you all called The Poet and the Mistress, so you'll have that to listen to. And then in two weeks' time, we should get back to politics, I guess, and the arrival of a new kid on the block, literally, in Richard II, son of the great hero, the Black Prince. Will the genes run true? There is a danger of a hiatus, by the way, at the start of March because of work and idleness, but we'll see. Okay, that's it for now. So good luck, everyone, and have a great day.